This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I'm your host, Andrew Friedman. I dropped in on Chef Amanda Cohen of Dirt Candy Restaurant last week. If you listen to the show I used to co-host here on Heritage, The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew, then you know that Amanda was one of our very favorite and most regular guests on that program. She opened her restaurant, Dirt Candy, which is a vegetable restaurant, in a 350-square-foot space in 2008 and relocated it to much larger digs on Allen Street just two years ago in 2015. And the restaurant just recently, about two weeks ago, shifted to an all-tasting menu format, offering two different options to diners. It seemed like a perfect time to invite Amanda on the show and to get her story and the story of the restaurant and all of its many iterations. It's a busy time for Amanda and not a great time for her to leave the restaurant, so we met last week in the morning in the dining room of Dirt Candy with her staff working in the open kitchen just a few feet away, so you'll hear a little bit of that in the background as we speak. And with that, here you go, my interview with Chef Amanda Cohen of Dirt Candy Restaurant in New York City. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning, Andrew. Why don't you start? Just orient us here. Where are you in your day here? It's about a little after 11 o'clock. Well, um, normally I would probably be just getting to the restaurant, uh, maybe a little bit earlier. Uh, And then I would uh, check in with the kitchen and see if there was any prep I had to do and start answering the, like, backlog of emails Mm -hmm. I have. the, I sort of don't really consider my, my, my true day doesn't start until 5.30 when I start to expedite or right. run the food. Uh, we're sort of in a special moment in the restaurant right now because we have revamped it and we've gone to an all-tasting menu format, uh, which has been a little bit uh, harder than we thought. So I've actually been here since about 8 a.m. this morning wow. uh, starting to do some of the prep. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, t- I told you before we started taping, I was here for dinner last night, left little after 10, I'm yeah. sure you, you were still running around the dining room and <laughs> bringing people food and flambéing eggplant. And, I was. Uh, and then at like 6.15 this morning, <laughs> I saw a little like pop up from you uh, on my Instagram feed, and I thought, Amanda's not getting enough <laughs> shut-eye. I am definitely not getting enough sleep these days, but that's okay. It's sort of, in a weird way, um, we all feel a little invigorated, so I don't know. There's this really nice energy, so I don't mind. Normally, I'm actually up at 6 a.m. anyways, right? Uh, but I'm probably not about on my way to the restaurant. Right. So, um, well, why don't we talk about this for a minute? So you just, um, you've been in this space now uh, for about two, two years. years. Yeah. 15, you reopened yeah, here yeah, as, yeah. what do you call it, big, big affectionately candy. big dirt candy yeah. or big candy? 
Um, and I should mention for people, we are sitting here in the in the dining room, and there is stuff going on. So whatever listeners may be hearing, <laughs> uh, staff meal is set out, and and floors are being mopped, and there yeah. is an open kitchen. So yeah, I think there's um, some blending going on. There might be some blending going on. Um, so if you're hearing things, that's what you're hearing. But what 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 prompted the change? Uh, and and why don't you just you know how how's it going? Um, well, we sort of hit this moment maybe about three, four months ago, which we had been slowly coming to. I think I had discussed it with you about a year ago yeah. that I might do this, um, where we just weren't happy in the dining room anymore, and we weren't happy in the kitchen. Um, we really felt like we were running two different restaurants every single night. We had a tasting menu that we were serving, and we had our regular a la carte, and doing them side by side just wasn't really working anymore that we couldn't spend enough time with the tasting menu tables and they are spending quite a bit of money and the a la carte tables although I think a lot of them really enjoyed us they just didn't quite get what they were doing and it's actually uh, I'm not sucking up to Andrew on this but it's something that was said uh, that Jimmy said to me on your show Jimmy, this is Jimmy Bradley yeah. on our old show, The Front Burner. Yeah, he said, you know, there's really two kinds of diners. There's those who are there for dinner and those who are there for the show. And that really struck home with me. Really? Yeah. So, and I was like, oh, I don't want to serve dinner. I want to serve a show. Yeah. Those are the people that really like us. And it just, it really did trigger something in me. And I was like, okay, that's sort of the catalyst. That sort of um, really set us forward on this path. Uh, and... We, I mean, and as we kept going and as it sort of solidifying itself in my head that this is what I wanted to do, we were looking at the kitchen and they are going crazy because they're too busy. They can't keep up with both sets of tickets. Um, and frankly, we weren't making enough money, even though we were doing, I think for a restaurant that's 10 years old, great numbers. We're still at like, or we were at 100, 120 every night. Sometimes really? 140, yeah. So that's a lot of people in the seats. There's a lot of people in the seats, but they're not spending the right kind of money here. And we started feeling sort of like a disposable restaurant. And I really, I'd rather people come less and spend more when they come. Right. And treat us sort of like a special occasion. Uh, I'd like to be less of a sweatpant restaurant and more of a <laughs> grown-up dining restaurant where right. people really come for the experience. Um, and we have this great wine list and we're not getting people to drink the wine. And we really, we wanted to push that. And so all that sort of came together and we sort of made this momentous decision for us to switch over. Yeah. And uh, when you talk about, you know, the kitchen having a hard time, you know, doing the, you know, a la carte and the tasting menu, yeah. can you just, for people who aren't chefs themselves or aren't professional cooks themselves, what are, what are, how's, what are the logistical issues that come up around that? Is it sort of like a schizophrenia yeah, of organization? Yeah, too many tickets going on, and the a la carte is much more fine dining, and the other one is sort of more casual dining, and so... We're trying to sort of combine the plates differently and how the plates look. And we have plates that have to go out at the certain, um, the same time on the tasting menu. And in the a la carte, it was sort of more of a, a you know, a free-for-all, tapas yeah. style. And it just, we couldn't, I'm sure some chefs could do it. I couldn't figure out how to do it with my staff yeah. to uh, not make my kitchen feel like they were having a nervous breakdown every day. Right. So, um, well, let's go, let's go all the way back. <laughs> um I was born in 1974. Exactly. Were you born in 1974? Uh, you're from Toronto originally? Uh, Ottawa and then Toronto. Ottawa and then Toronto. And when you go back uh, or think back on, um, you know, your childhood, where did food figure in and when did you first start thinking about doing something like this? Uh, you know, honestly, 
Uh, I liked food as a kid. Uh, food was always really important in my family. We always sat down for family dinner together. We were one of those families that when we traveled, the sort of uh, the plan of the day was where are we going to eat next. Uh, but I never really thought I would grow up to be a chef. I uh, had come to NYU for school, for university. Afterwards, I lived in Hong Kong for two years, and I, I really enjoyed traveling. This is totally true. And I thought, oh, I, you know, I like this traveling lifestyle, yeah. but, you know, my parents aren't going to support me forever, so I better, you know, get a skill. And uh, I figured I could, uh, I like to eat. I like to cook. I did cook a bunch in my childhood. Um, what kind of like, stuff? I don't know. I think like pies and hamburgers on hamburgers and yeah. before I quit eating meat and a lot of pizzas on the grill. I was very ahead of the time. Uh-huh. Uh, what, I, with grilling pizzas? Yeah, grilling pizzas. <laughs> and like 1988. Right. Um, my best friend who, looks, who lived next door to me also really loved to cook. And so that was our after school activity. Was yeah. Cooking together. Uh, and... I sort of, I came back to the city and I went to the Natural Gourmet uh, to, you know, learn a little bit more about cooking. And I thought I would travel with uh, what I learned. And as it turned out, I didn't really travel again until the right. last couple of years with the skill. Yeah. Can we talk about, this is a school, I think you're the only person I know who's went there. It's the <laughs> National Gourmet. The Natural Gourmet Cookery Institute. Institute. Yeah. And what's the culture of this place and why did you select that as your cooking school? I selected it because it was the only almost all vegetarian cooking school at the time. Yeah. And I think now it's a little bit easier to be a vegetarian chef uh, at the bigger schools. But when I applied or when I was talking to them about applying, they were like, absolutely not. Uh, you have to... You mean to, these, to yeah, other schools? Yeah. They were like, you have to you know, go to all the meat classes. You have to taste meat in front of us. And I was like, well, I just... That's not going to happen. <laughs> so you, even when you were a student, were thinking that you were going to end up doing something akin to what you're doing now? Like you... Yeah, yeah, I think I thought I would stick with being vegetarian, and so, I mean, I'm actually not vegetarian anymore. Right. Uh, you eat, but you don't eat meat, or I'll you try do? It. I'll try anything at least once. Okay. Uh, and I eat fish pretty regularly. Right. Um, the, but it, that, that is why I chose the school, and it had sort of the more sort of, um, I guess at the time, let's say, um, hippie culture that I was kind of into uh -huh. at the time. Which means what to you? It, it was very health-oriented. Um, so actually, what's most fascinating about the school uh, is how like, the ingredients that they were using then, uh, which was so popular in the natural food world, um, are so popular these days. I mean, like, they were, there was quinoa there, yeah. seaweeds, like, yeah. all that kind of stuff, all the like, spell, amaranth. Um, all those ancient grains, uh, all these, you know, like really healthy or supposedly healthy ingredients that, you know, people are using now, um, uh, goji berries, all yeah. that kind of stuff. They were using then. Was that stuff new to you then? Oh, yeah. It was? Yeah. I don't think I knew much about quinoa until I went to school in like 1995. Uh-huh. What, uh, what, what started your vegetarianism? All my friends, when I was 15, became vegetarian, and they I did. thought that would be really cool to do what they were doing. It was kind of peer pressure. Was it political? Was it health? Was it What was the main motivator? Or was it just this kind of a thing, somebody did it and everyone else kind of followed suit? Was it not examined in that way? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it was really examined. I think this was around 1989, 
90, somewhere around there. And yeah. it was a, like, I remember sort of there's a, like, Earth Day came back into being. Yes, and it had right. been celebrated and hadn't been celebrated for yeah. many years. Yeah. And uh, I think for probably most of my friends, it was like an environmental animal rights issue. As it turned out, I didn't really like meat. I just didn't know that then. Like, I, when I gave it up, you know, we'd always sort of known as a kid that I wasn't that interested in it. Right. Like, I didn't like seeing bones in a chicken or fish. It really skeeved me out. Right. Um, you didn't have, like, that periodic, like, oh, I really could go for no. a burger. You didn't have that no. thing. I still don't have it. Yeah. Uh, I never missed bacon. Like, yeah. I never was like, oh, I really want meat. I just didn't. I could have been born vegetarian, and it wouldn't have mattered. Right. So, and when, at that school, at the Gourmet Institute, not the, I'm sorry, at the, the Natural Gourmet. I keep forgetting, at the Natural <laughs> Gourmet Institute, um, were, were other people there with the idea of going professional? I mean, was it? Yeah, I mean, it was a chef's culinary program, and they still have one. Uh, it was very small. I think there was only 16 people in my class. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, uh, at the time, quite a number of people thought they were going to, uh, go on to become chefs and uh, over the years a number of them have but it's yeah. also a school where lots of people go to learn how to cook yeah and to learn all about sort of the more natural health world it's a very uh, health supportive uh, community was, so was the curriculum kind of what you'd expect at almost any cooking school I mean minus the no <laughs> I wish everyone could see the face that the uh, I mean yes no, it's very short Amanda just made <laughs> I, yeah. I think the program was only three months four months so it's pretty short okay so which was great because you know you sort of for me I love to cook. I wanted to learn some more basic knife skills. I had cooked a little bit professionally beforehand, like a tiny bit. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to get a more basic understanding. I'm pretty shy, and I knew, like, there was no way I could walk into a kitchen without like, at least You're having You're pretty shy? To... Yes, I'm exceptionally shy. Are you shy. really? Yes, I'm totally shy. But you don't, you don't uh, present as shy. Uh, Did you used to present as shy? Yes. Uh, I was often the kid in the corner reading a book, not talking to anybody. Really? Yes. And how did you, I mean, for people, I mean, you've, you do, you've done a lot of television, <laughs> you do a lot of public speaking, you, I mean, you've obviously conquered this, or at least gotten uh, to a place where you can conquer it for periods of time. Yeah, in social situations, I'm much better now. I think running the restaurant forced me to be out on the floor. Because people expect to see a chef yeah, in the dining and room. and they want to talk to you, and yeah. I just, I think that really helped a lot, and uh, you can make yourself do anything, even if it's incredibly uncomfortable. Right. Okay. Do you enjoy it now? Uh, not always, no. <laughs> okay. I'd still rather be in my home just, just reading a book, not talking to anybody. That's pretty funny. Uh, so at what point in your, um, how early on did you start to conceive or have the, like, the germ of an idea for what uh, eventually became Dirt Candy? Were you always thinking, it, uh, was this something that was kind of... A, uh, a, the, a rough idea in your head that over the years just kind of kept being revised and until you were in a position to do your own thing? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, you graduate from cooking school and you're like, well, I'm a chef. I right. can open a restaurant You right had that now. mindset? Totally. I That's was like, so if I funny. don't have a restaurant by the time I'm 25, I'm a failure. Um, and then I, you know, kept getting jobs and realizing that I didn't know anything. But I still thought that I totally deserved a restaurant. Right. Uh, and... Um, it just never sort of came up. And I, I started working through the ranks of restaurants. And I finally hit sort of, um, I guess, an executive sous chef position uh, in, in a number of restaurants. And I went from one to the rather next one in that position. And I sort of kind of got fired in all of them. None of them were my fault. One, I quit. Uh, one, I was pushed out because the boss was a criminal. And then the third one, I was genuinely fired because I sent an email by accident 
um, before I, I, you know, edited it. Oh, I mean, <laughs> but to your to your boss, to, my to boss, your chef, yeah, uh, to one of the owners. Uh, but everything I said in that email was very true. Uh, I mean, okay. Can we ask? What, there was there was some kind of tension going on. Yeah, there was. I really wanted to build a restaurant in the. They wanted to build a restaurant in the Lower East Side. This was probably about uh, maybe twelve years ago. Yeah. Uh, and it was a hundred seat vegetarian restaurant. And I, I was like, "There's no way." I was like, "I, I, and in the even at that time, I was sort of the, probably the most well known vegetarian chef in the city." or at least one of them, I was like, I'm not going to get 100 people into the Lower East Side in a 100-seat restaurant. Uh, and I really wanted to... 100-seat vegetarian restaurant? Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, you thought that was good. I thought that was insane. Yeah. And I had sort of, in the last two jobs, started writing up the budgets for the restaurant. And I very quickly understood why all restaurants hemorrhage, hemorrhage money very quickly. And I was like, we can't do this. Uh, and I really wanted to put a grocery store. This was before this sort of became a thing in New York, in the front of the restaurant, because the time, and even still now, there's not a lot of sort of like fancy gourmet grocery stores right. in this area. Yeah. Uh, and they had said, yes, yes, yes. And I was like, great, this is how we can make this work. And then we can have this great restaurant. Uh, and at one point they turned back to me and they're like, yeah, we're just not going to do that grocery store. And I was like, well, I can't, it's my name on the restaurant and I don't see how this is possibly going to make money. I will say that about three years after I got fired, the owner of that restaurant did come up and apologize to me. Is that right? Yeah, he was like, you were totally right, 100%. He was like, we should have listened to you. Wow. I well, know, that's worth something, really right? I yeah. know. She said as she smiled. <laughs> yes. Uh, so just to go back to the opening or having dirt candy, it had always, as I went through my career, it became this uh, small idea. And I wasn't, it wasn't going to necessarily be dirt candy. Dirt candy came into fruition as Dirt Candy was opening. Um, uh, but after I got fired from my last job, I was like, well, that's it. <laughs> uh, there's pretty much nowhere else I can go in this city. There were no other vegetarian chef jobs in the city. I worked on You felt like you had places. worked at sort of all the kind yeah. of whatever people would call these health, health vegetarian, exactly. whatever restaurants. And I wasn't really interested in that anymore. And it wasn't actually anything I had ever really been interested in. I've right. never been a healthy chef or environmental chef or political chef. I just always really like to cook. Yeah. Um, so. What's the, is your, uh, what's the evolution for somebody who cooks with the limitation that you cook with? In other words, how does it differ from, uh, if, if at all, you know, from someone who's, you know, cooking a lot with meat, poultry, fish? What, what, because it seems to me like part of cooking in the style that you cook in, um, uh, is is hitting certain notes that people expect or right. create, right? Sub substitutions for things that maybe people achieve sometimes with with protein, yeah, of right? Course. So, what what kind of what's the evolution of a vegetarian or vegetable focused chef? Do, you don't understand what I'm trying to well, ask. Truthfully, I think you have to eat meat, <laughs> or you have to understand what regular customers want to eat. Uh huh. Uh, and you have to get the basics of vegetable cooking, and you have to really understand what it is that customers like to eat. And then you, I think, to keep attracting customers, you have to a grow with them and be exceptionally creative. Creative in what you mean? Because with when you have chicken or beef or fish, you have this amazing. Not that vegetables aren't amazing. I love vegetables. I hope my vegetables in my kitchen don't turn on me. <laughs> um, the but you have this sort of inherently delicious product right in front of you. Yes. That you don't have to do that much to to yeah. make delicious. But people crave it. They're like, oh, I really want chicken tonight. Oh, I really want meat. Oh, I really want fish. Very few people really wake up in the morning and say, ooh. 
I want a carrot tonight. Right. Uh, so you have to go above and beyond with that carrot to make it not just like craveable for people, but something they actually and actively want to eat mm -hmm. night after night. Yeah. And what are some of the things that one picks up along the way to... And then I think big flavor and texture. You sort of try to figure out how, not how you can mimic uh, animal protein, but an animal, a piece of animal protein has different textures throughout it. That's interesting. So right. if you think of a carrot, it's unitextured. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like there's no skin, there's no meat, there's no right. fat, there's no uh, muscle. Yeah. It's just a carrot. Yeah. Um, so that's something we really try to do is put all those textures into that carrot because that's what your mouth wants. That's what your body craves and that's what satisfies it. And the same thing with fat, um, you know, vegetables don't have fat. Uh, so we do try to get some fat into every dish, at mm -hmm. least. Um, I'm not a healthy restaurant. Right. Uh, because that's what makes them taste delicious. That's a mouthfeel. Yeah. And then in terms of flavor, uh, there's only so many flavors in the world. Right. Uh, or And if there are more, I'm certainly probably not going to be the one to create them. Yeah. So we want to give people the flavors that you associate with meat with vegetables because yep. those are also things that people come back to and they know and it's familiar and it's delicious. People yeah. eat meat for a reason. It's delicious. Yes. So like can we can we break one dish down? Can we uh, talk about yeah. the slider? Like, yeah. can we talk? Okay, so the carrot slider and now you serve it here. I'd never seen I don't know if it's new. I'd never seen it. And the, with the tasting menu yeah. it comes in a little the cutest little box. This little like fast food <laughs> box with a carrot uh, sticker on it. Um and I love that slider. I mean, I think that slider is, I love it. Right. I do crave that slider. <laughs> like, if I'm within a certain radius of here, I will sometimes think, oh, maybe I'll go to the bar and order. Some sliders. Can I still, I can't do that anymore. I will let you come in I and can, order okay, the slider. Okay, thank you. But I do sometimes say, oh, I'll go get some sliders and a, you know, glass of wine and right. it'll be perfect. Um, but how do you achieve that? Because that does have the qualities of a, of a, of a, of a meat, of right? a hamburger. So, with that, um, I wanted to make a really good veggie burger. And, but I, I, I wanted to take something that would change the dialogue of veggie burgers. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with the veggie burgers that are out there. And I'm not trying to dismiss the other ones. But I just feel like putting together a grain burger or a bean burger or possible, I'm sure it's delicious meat burger, whatever those things are. Yeah. You're still not getting people to actually eat what's in the name of the burger, which is a veggie burger. It's a vegetable burger. Right. So I really, I was like, okay, how do we do this? So it becomes neither thing, right? It's right. not meat, but you're also trying to completely uh, transform the vegetableness right. of it. Right. right. Exactly. So we started, um, I actually haven't had a McDonald's hamburger and probably... 35 years or so, okay. but I have enough of a memory to, you know, recreate it, I guess. And what struck me, what was really delicious about a McDonald's burger was partially the meat, uh, but also like in a Big Mac was the sauce, was the really soft bun. Yeah. I think a bun in a burger is the most important component. Mm -hmm. People, I, I don't understand why people put hamburgers on fancy buns. Like, right. A, a bun, a hamburger, really good hamburger bun. I think should just be soft and melt into the burger. Right. Um, just enough, just enough bun that it doesn't disintegrate. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so, and then you're like, oh, there's the lettuce, and then there's the tomato pickle, and uh, does the flavor is the flavor of meat that important in a burger? And I was like, actually, you know, I don't think in like sort of 
um, a cheap <laughs> burger right. that it's that important. Yeah. Uh, and so what we did was we decided to we uh, confit the carrots. Uh, for hours in their own juice and fat so we can get them meltingly tender yeah. so they feel fatty in your mouth a little bit when you bite into right. them. Uh, we give you the crispy yuba, which is the soy skin that we deep fry to mimic like a really big crunchy piece of lettuce. And yuba always has a funny little, almost inherently in itself, smoky, bacony yeah. flavor. Uh, then we put soy cucumbers in it, and then we set out to recreate the Big Mac sauce, uh -huh. except we're in Chinatown, and we're serving them on the, the carrot buns are a form of bao buns, uh, so we wanted to have a play between those two. So the, instead of making a Big Mac sauce, we have our hoisin Big Mac sauce. And you have this tiny little bite of a yeah. carrot bun that I, or a carrot slider that isn't, it's obviously not a hamburger, but I think it hits all those notes yeah. that a regular hamburger does. And for me, it really does change the discussion around what a veggie burger can be. It's not a mashed up piece of meat that's falling apart in a bun. It's a vegetable in a bun. Right. Yeah, well, it's similar. You do that broccoli, the right, broccoli exactly. dogs, right? Yeah. Which is the stock of a broccoli, broccoli and treated like a hot dog. Yeah, smoked and grilled in right. a really soft hot dog bun again. So when you uh, decide it's time to do your own place and, and do Dirt Candy, yeah. or what became Dirt Candy, um, can you take me through the um, evolution of that, like from initial inception to finding the space? And for people who don't know, the original Dirt Candy was a very small... <laughs> how many technically seats did it have? Uh, 18. Right. We could unfortunately squish in about six more on a bad right. night. Yeah, and for people uh, who are in New York these days or visit New York, it's the space that is now Superiority Burger. Exactly. Um, which is still, is, what is it, a 300 square foot space? It's like 350. 350? Yeah. Um, but how, how, did it, how did it come about? How long, uh, for, you had the idea, and how long did it take to find that space? And so I had the idea the moment that I was fired that I had to open my own restaurant because uh, there was literally nowhere else for me to go. Yeah. Uh, and so I started looking for spaces, and I you know, it's funny because I had been in this industry in the city probably for a good 12 years already, and but I didn't have any resources. I was like, where do I find a lawyer? Where do I find an architect? So you had none of this stuff lined up? I had no, none, nothing. Um, so this was really, really from, like, scratch. Uh, uh, I, like I'd, Years ago, I'd been a private chef. And I was like, oh, I think one of them was an architect. I wonder if I could call them. One of your clients. Yeah. yeah. And I called them. They referred me to somebody else. And then I had, like, the. I think I found my lawyer through the National Restaurant Association. These organizations are actually good. Um, and it sort of spiraled, spiraled from there. The but, And I had found a space. About six months after looking, I found this great space I loved in the Lower East Side. Uh, and we went through another, like, six months of negotiations. And... At one point, we were about to close the deal, and the chef, and I was buying it. There was about $200,000 in key money. Uh -huh. And the chef was like, great, I want it in cash. And I was like, well, I, I can probably write you a check for cash. And he was like, no, no, I want it in cash. And I was like, I just, I can't, no, I don't, <laughs> right. I can't bring you a suitcase filled with $200,000. And he was like, well, that's the only way I'm going to close the deal. I called my lawyer, and I was like, so... Kevin, do you think this is a good or a bad idea? And he was like, oh, Amanda. This is how a lot of our conversations started. He was like, oh, Amanda, no, are you crazy? And I was like, right. right. And he was like, I'll, I'll figure this out. And literally within the next three days, he found me another space. He found me the little dirt candy space. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why have you been holding out on me this whole time? And I walked in, 
And I actually fell in love with it, which is hard to imagine if you saw it, what it looked like when I took it over. I mean, it really was a hole in the ground. No floor, no ceiling. What had it been? Uh, I think it had been like a, uh, they sold violins there at one point, and it had been a secondhand clothing store at one point. Uh, And uh, from the moment that we started looking at it to the moment... Uh, I actually opened my doors. It was about a year and a half. Wow. It still took that long. Build it from scratch, get all the permits. Um, we went through two contractors. We had to restart everything again. Uh, it was sort of this giant nightmare for that tiny, tiny yeah. space. Yeah. What When you say you fell in love with it, I mean, you're describing a pretty raw space. What yeah. was it about it that appealed to you? Just it, felt like home? It just felt right. It was like, this is the right size. I had written up the budget for the restaurant that we could fail and it would be okay. Um, I didn't have that much faith that we would be successful. I knew I wanted to do a sort of a vegetarian restaurant uh, that was a little different than every other vegetarian restaurant. We were definitely going to have cheese and butter on the menu, which most vegetarian restaurants call themselves vegetarian, but they're actually vegan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and I just, I wasn't sure how the whole thing would be accepted. Um, I had served eggs at the restaurant, two restaurants before I opened that one, and I got a lot of hate mail from a lot of the vegans talking about how awful I was to serve eggs. And I was like, ugh, who's going to come to this restaurant? And the, so it was small enough that I felt I could control it. Mm-hmm. And it was on Ninth Street, and my first apartment in New York City was on Ninth Street. Okay, so it had sentimental yeah, I value. felt very comfortable on it, uh-huh. on the street. You felt like you understood the neighborhood? Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, so we just, we went for it, you know, signed the lease and did it. And then we opened, and we actually opened on October 29th, 2008, which was one of the worst days in the American financial markets. Uh, I had no choice but to open on that Oh, was day. that the day of the... Yeah. Uh, six months after we were supposed to open, so I was like, well, we're opening. Right. Uh, but we opened as a vegetarian restaurant, and it took about six... I would say six months for us to really figure out that we weren't a vegetarian restaurant. We were a vegetable restaurant. Yeah. And uh, even and what though... Do, what does that mean to you? You know, I think, and there's nothing wrong with this. Most vegetarian restaurants are lifestyle, political, environmental restaurants. Yep. They have an ethos. There's something... Food is often secondary to it, or at least it was when we opened. I, I do think that has changed in the last couple of years. Uh, and my entire goal was just to serve delicious food that happened to only be vegetables. Mm-hmm. Which is what? Because that's how you ate? Because that's how I ate because that's how uh, I had taught to be creative in the kitchen or I had learned to be creative in the kitchen. It's yeah. how my mind worked. Uh, I really liked, I liked cooking with boundaries. So I like this idea of having one vegetable on each plate and trying to figure out what we can do with it. Yeah. When you say creative, what is, it's interesting because the Last week's show, which is the only other show we've done so far, we had Alex Stupak and I had a big talk about this. And his whole view, it was interesting. He made the point that, you know, a lot of people use the word creative almost in this, like, whimsical way. Right. Like, oh, I want to be creative. And, you know, as if it means, like, just do whatever. And But to, to him, creativity actually, you just used, also used the word boundaries. Yeah. He actually felt that creativity, um, I guess good creativity, you're actually is, there's discipline to it yeah. that you actually need to be structured about how you go about that or or it just gets it can go off the deep end or get a little silly and you need a lot of technique behind it and a lot of I technique think. behind it yeah. how so or why um because if the food doesn't taste good yeah. then it doesn't matter how clever it is yeah uh, my goal with the creativity is to make people smile when i give them the food i don't uh-huh. want dining to be very serious i want yeah. you to come and laugh and like 
uh, enjoy with us sort of the absurdity of what we're doing every night in this restaurant. Yeah. Um, and so I do want people to sort of laugh when they, not at it, <laughs> but yeah. laugh with us at the food. Uh, and I want them to really sort of think, oh, this is something that I didn't know could be created, uh, but I am so excited to sort of think about creating it on my own. Mm-hmm. What, uh, when you first, when you opened the original Dirt Candy, which is, I guess, nine years ago now, Yeah. Uh, what, what was the biggest surprise for you when you first opened the doors and started having customers come in? Like, what were, what were the things that you found that you really didn't know about <laughs> Oni? I mean, you'd been the chef de cuisine or yeah. chef of other restaurants. What was the big thing for you as a, as a chef owner all of a sudden? Uh, how important... Uh, actually being a restaurateur was. It's a big difference. Uh, you can have all the skills you want in the kitchen, uh, but boy, is it a learning curve, like controlling a dining room. How and so? You have to learn to deal with customers. You have to learn to deal with timing. You, It just, um, even just like serving people and how that feels. And they're, it, it, it's so humbling to realize, uh, I think, how people accept your food and how you have to talk about your food and how you have to convince people to like your food and how you can't get mad at people if they don't like your food. Yeah. Um, especially we've always had an open kitchen, which is sort of another tough part of all of this. Uh, Cause you can't go back and be like, oh, I'm going to kill that person. You're right. just sort of like, Oh, I'm so excited. Right. Um, but just really all the little things and actually the cost of running a restaurant that, you know, you even, Though I had written up budgets for two other restaurants and I had opened other restaurants, uh, you know, the moment I opened the doors of Dirt Candy, I was like, oh, I didn't expect that cost. Right. Uh, I can you know, uh, I compare it to that moment um, when, you know, a teenager gets their first paycheck and they're like, what are all these, like, words? And why did all these words have my money? And, you know, you have to explain that... Uh, it's, you know, the government takes all money the deductions. Yeah, all and, the deductions. Yeah, and so right. the moment I did my first payroll and I was like, what's this FUDA and what's this SUDA, which is right. federal unemployment yep. and state unemployment. Yep. I was like, oh, right. So my payroll has basically just doubled. Right. Um, and that that is actually, I think, the hardest thing really, really to learn. And the other thing is on the, um, as the chef actually cooking I think you really learn quickly because there's usually a buffer between you and the customers. And so you have an owner who might say they don't like something and you're like, well, fine, it's just that owner. Uh, but when you're actually serving customers and you're the one who is reading the reviews and yeah. talking to them, you realize you are, you might think you have the best palate in the world, but I'm not cooking for me. Mm -hmm. I'm cooking for a dining room full of people. And so I have to figure out what it is they like, and right. you know, put, my style on that sort of general uh, idea of food. Yeah, great. Okay, we're going to take a short break. Okay. We're talking with Chef Amanda Cohen of Dirt Candy Restaurant in New York City, and we'll be right back on Andrew Talks to Chefs. My theme song and break music is from After School Special's album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. 
That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollock scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollock is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. And we are back talking with Chef Amanda Cohen from Dirt Candy Restaurant in New York City. Um, so, Amanda, I would love to talk to you about your... Um, you You seem to me, and I guess I've... Maybe I first noticed it with your book. And we should say your cookbook was done in, do we call it in the form of a graphic novel? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it tells your story. Uh, it does have recipes, which we could say are illustrated because yeah. uh, of the way it's done. It has some general cooking advice. Um, but you also talk in this very um, frank, um, I mean, I would say probably vulnerable way. <laughs> About the business, the business of the business, yeah. right? Of of the insecurities of, uh, you just told this cash story a minute ago. Like that story's in the book. <laughs> um, uh, the guy who wanted cash yeah, for the yeah. restaurant. Um, the logistical challenges, dealing with the city, dealing with contractors. Um, at, I, I mean, was it even a conscious decision? You seem very um, committed to sharing this part of the business, your life, um, uh, with the, the general public. Uh, what's, what's the motivation for that? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not actually 100% sure, but I do know sort of when I, when we opened Little Dirt Candy, I had a blog and I really wanted to write the blog because I had come out of a series of um, unfortunate jobs. And I'd had a, a long enough career up until that point where I had gone through stuff. I had ups and downs. I'd been passed over for positions, um, burns and cuts and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And I just, at one point, I think I looked around and, and it was sort of when I was like, wow, I don't know who to call for an architect or a lawyer. And I was like, there's got to be a way where we can make this feel more like a community. And I was like, the only way I know how to start this is if I'm really truthful about what I need and what I want sort of what I would have liked to have heard yeah. and if I can put that out there maybe people really will come back to me and, and help me the next time I have questions because I've been so honest with them about what I'm going through and what I have been going through and what I foresee myself going yeah. through um, it doesn't uh, it certainly didn't feel like a real community to me when I was coming up in this industry uh, I didn't the know chef community of New York uh, City? Uh, not at all um, although I was in, I, I don't think it's because chefs were awful back then. I was in a very small uh, part of it in the vegetarian. The vegetarian world. world. Is that a, is that kind of a sub community? Yeah, it's like a sub sub community. Is it really? Yeah, at least at the time it was. I think I was, um, you know, one of the one of the moments I knew I had sort of started to make it in in the industry was when I started seeing industry people in Dirt Candy. Uh-huh. Uh, I had almost never seen, like, another chef in a vegetarian restaurant before right. who I could name. Uh, so I was like, oh, maybe we really are onto something here because other chefs are, are starting to care about what I'm doing. So yeah. being a vegetarian chef and being a woman chef uh, are sort of two marks against you. Yeah. 
or were, still are. Uh, and I, I really did, I, I wanted to ask questions of people. I wanted to be able to turn to them and say, hey, you know, what do you do when um, you just want to go in the bathroom and cry every day because nothing is possibly working out in the restaurant? And there was nobody for me to turn to. Yeah. So I sort of put it out there on the internet hoping yeah. that something good would come back. Was it cathartic for you to just share it like that? Because I've seen you write about there is this... Um, uh, I forget, it's one of the pieces I think you wrote for Eater where you said that, you know, there's, you're, you're supposed to, you know, be on magazine covers and in right. articles and projecting confidence and, you know, <laughs> celebrity, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You, you, you've alluded to this, but there's a burden that comes with that. Well, there is a huge burden because nobody actually talks about uh, what it takes to get on those magazine covers and what's right. happening at the same time as those magazine covers are, those pictures are being taken. Uh, and I, this sort of also came out of, I guess this was at the same time sort of like Top Chef and um, uh, the next Food Network star and right. Iron, the, Chef. Iron yeah. Chef, all those food competition shows. Um, and it, it sort of really made cooking seem glamorous. And I'm watching these shows going, what is glamorous about this industry? This yeah. industry is painful and it's like physically difficult. It's emotionally difficult. Uh, there is nothing, I don't see the glamour in this industry that they are portraying. And we were getting cooks coming in who were like, oh, you know, I really want to learn to cook. And one day I'd like to be on TV. And I was like, wow, that's just not a dream I could possibly have thought anybody would say to me when I started my career, which I started my career almost at the same time as the Food Network started. Right. I, that just didn't exist. The internet did not exist. Yep. Uh, really before like as I, when I went to cooking school I was look, looking it up on like my friend's computer on some really like you know internet version point one yeah <laughs> it wasn't real um so I just I, I thought it was really important for people to see the other side and to understand that every night in the restaurant I'm not going to be perfect the restaurant isn't going to be perfect it's not um, a reality TV show where the plates come out and everything looks good and it's all right. Uh, there is like real problems that happen every day in a kitchen mm -hmm. and we try our best. Cooks are human. We're not celebrities. We're not stars. I'm mean, obviously some are. Uh, but the reality is there's people cooking that food in the kitchen who are human. Yeah. Do you, uh, what was the response when you started sharing this way? Like from, from customers uh, and then from, I mean, you just changed it in the new iteration of the restaurant. But, you know, even the menu of the, yeah. of the until recently on the back had all these like sort of fun statistics. And uh, some of that was kind of insidery information about totally. the business. Um, but how did customers respond to this kind of, um, uh, these revelations? And how did, how did fellow chefs, did people... Ever the, say to you like that it was nice to see someone sort of just leveling? Yeah, uh, I got so many nice emails from chefs or people would come up to me and say, thank you so much for that piece you wrote. Um, it really sort of changed the way I think about my own job or you know, we had a whole series on how to open a restaurant. People were like, yeah, well, I'm never opening a restaurant now. Thanks so much for setting me straight. Um, or I used that every time like something would go wrong with when I was opening a restaurant, I would go back and read what you wrote and be like, okay, it's okay. Other people have gone through this. Um, so for the most part, I would say the feedback was phenomenal. Every once in a while, uh, we would get people who would be like, I don't know why you would share that. Or, you know, on the back of the old menu at the Big Dirt Candy, yeah, uh, we had something about um, 
you know, 19 uh, Yelp reviews that were only one star because I'm the right. worst chef in the world. And people would actively get angry about that here. They'd be like, why would you say that? You've ruined my meal. I don't want to know that people think you were a bad chef. And I was like, well, it's kind of like I'm trying to have a sense of humor. And then half of me is going, yeah, you're probably not going to like the rest of the meal if you don't like that <laughs> one thing. Right. At the same time, I'm like, we're yeah. incompatible. I, yeah, <laughs> totally. Let's let's end this now. Right. Uh at the same time, I was like, yeah, I totally get it. But, you know, that's what we are. We're really honest. We have um, part of the ethos of the restaurant has always been we're really honest. And I think that's because we have this open kitchen. We've always had an open kitchen. And I don't have a quiet open kitchen. I have a messy, real open kitchen. You can see people. That doing is funny. Things. Having eaten at the counter. I mean, it's not the first time, but it, right, it's not a hushed. No. Yeah. No, right. It, it kind of functions like a normal kitchen. Yeah. Well, you would see in the public eye. doors. Right. And then right. you go to a lot of these uh, counter restaurants where there is an open restaurant or even just seated. Um, and I feel like the kitchen's fake. <laughs> like You don't see the real work. There's a basement somewhere where people are, um, you know, there's cameras, big, huge containers filled with prep. And uh, here, and you don't see those out ever in the dining room. Yeah. And here I'm like, no, who cares? Like, yeah. we're a kitchen. We're going to prep. Things are going to go in big cameras. And yes, they're going to see we're prepping for tomorrow. But if they think that I don't have to get ahead on some of this today, yeah. then like, they're not, they don't understand this yeah. restaurant. Now, when you say one of the things about the philosophies, of the, I forget the word you use, is, is honesty. Yeah. We're, we're, that's a conscious decision you've made? Yeah, we decided we never want I, I decided I didn't ever want to hide anything. So the blog is honest. The kitchen is open. You can see things fall on the floor. Obviously, we pick them up and throw them in the garbage. Right. You can see us get upset. Uh, we try really hard not to uh, yell aggressively, but you can see it when the... I can't hide that the kitchen gets aggressive sometimes. And mm -hmm. that, you know... You mean aggressive as in you may be getting yeah, aggressive like, to keep things on pace? Yeah, like I'm not bullying, but, you know, right. you yell. Uh, people, some people love sitting at the seat next to the expediting, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. This is like really watching a reality TV right. show, and you're just standing there yelling, right. and other people are like, you're making me really tense, and I can't sit here. Could you not yell so much? And I'm like... Has someone actually said that? Oh to yeah, you? I'm like I no. I was like I'm so happy to move you, but I have to scream down the line. Yeah. And I'm not like, hey, idiot, move faster. I'm like, all right, I need the fried food for 203. Let's go, let's go. How much time? And we try right. to make it funny, but I can't hide that's what's happening. So we might as well. Once you have that, I think it's really hard to pretend that, you know. It's like if you're out on the dining room floor and, you know, the kitchen's on fire, you can't sort of be like, oh, yeah, no, I don't see any flames. Yeah. We're all like, oh, look at that. We're putting on a fire show. Right. Uh, we're not going to pretend. What's your relationship to the stresses of the business? In other words, do you aspire to, I mean, you've been at this for a while, do you aspire to a time where you kind of conquer all these things or is it just like this is the reality of this business, it's always going to be this way? And, um, you know, as they say in Godfather 2, this is the business we've chosen. Yeah, this you know, is this the, is just how it is. Yeah, this is how it is. That is the golden unicorn is that, oh, it's stress-free and you yeah. have this kitchen and nothing happens. But there's too many variables. Is it appreciably better from when you first opened like nine years ago? Or is it pretty much the same level of, of, of stress, surprise, crises, all that stuff? I think the crises are just as bad. I'd like to think that I have learned how to deal with it a lot better. Yeah. So that's all you can do. I mean, that's really all I think I can do. So right. um, when there are disasters, uh, I'm more likely now to be like, okay, I guess we'll just 
move on or we won't serve that or we'll figure right. something out or oh look the dishwasher is exploding yeah i probably won't call the like plumber and cry i'll wait until tomorrow because there's really nothing he can do today like i don't know i, I feel like i've learned i have some sort of tools in my arsenal sure. that help me deal with this um but i there is not a single night that dirt candy has been open that i haven't thought that i might have a heart attack <laughs> um what you uh, you, you've gotten involved in certain uh, hot topic issues in the business. Uh, you were you the, you don't allow, you don't have tipping in your restaurant. I do not have tipping. Uh, are you the first restaurant in New York to do that? Is that an accurate? That is pretty much accurate. There was a couple of Japanese restaurants that didn't have it, and a couple of the very expensive tasting yeah. restaurants where I don't really think it was noticed whether or not there was tipping. Right. Um, but I would say the first sort of regular mainstream restaurant. Uh, I was the first. Was that, a, was that a straight business decision for you, or do you consider it? Uh, do you consider it also in part a political decision? Yeah, I, um, business. It was sort of looking ahead uh, because of minimum wage going up, yeah. and I was like, I don't. I'm just going to have to raise my prices, and people already think I'm expensive. How am I going to deal with this? Yeah. Uh, so that was one part of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely a political, moral decision for me. I just, I really. I think once you really understand uh, sort of tipping and the system and, and what it means to not necessarily make a decent night's wages uh, because of the kitchen could have gone off or because your table just didn't like you or because of the weather um, or because maybe you're a woman or because you're an unattractive man, whatever the millions of reasons it could be. I just, when you say because you're a woman or an unattractive, you mean these are things that might cause someone to tip you less? Yeah, less or, um, well... Um, very full-figured women tend to uh, make more money if yes. you're a little chesty. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, so, but there's all these sort of uh, different reasons why people make money, or uh, like why I, I think tipping is a, a really bad system. Uh, and I also, I'm a restauranter. I make money. I, why don't I pull in all the money and then redistribute it? I yeah. really want, I, the idea that I'm outsourcing half my payroll to the tables just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, I guess from a business point of view, it kind of does because then you don't really, all my, I have all these uh, extra expenses because I don't have tipping. My insurance has gone up. Yeah. My payroll taxes have gone up. Um, but that should be the cost of doing business. It shouldn't really fall on the customers. Yeah. Well, it's also an extra burden, right? I mean, I've seen this, you know, like I know Danny Meyer's places have, have made that shift yeah. and you know, you do look at, although I have to say, I, and I'm not just, um, you know, being kind because I was here last night and you just started this new menu, but, you know, the, 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 the pricing on the two new tasting menus that you offer do not seem steep right. at all. Um, especially, and it was almost, I was like, oh my God, and that includes the, <laughs> this tipping? Like, it, I'm, I really mean that. But, you know, you do, at some restaurants that have made the shift, look at their pricing and you're like, oh my God, it's that much for a bowl right. of pasta or is that much for whatever and you have even as somebody who's you know covers the business you you have to remind yourself about that right um, and it's really so hard. you're also taking on this education piece you have to every table needs to be yes and every table for the most part still gets to spiel at the beginning yes we know our prices look a little bit higher right uh but it is because tip are included. And it's sort of, it, it's a fascinating uh, thing to understand and to learn about. Um, one of the things with the tipping is when people go out for dinner, they never remember the second amount of money that they signed off on. 
the tip that they added up. They only remember the first line of the bill. Right. So sure. you don't actually remember, oh, yeah, my meal actually did cost 40 more dollars because I wrote in 40 and then I signed it off. You really think, oh, it was only like $100 or 100 and 20 and I ended up tipping 30 or whatever. Yeah. You don't remember that 30. And so getting people to really change their thinking in terms of looking at menu prices yes. uh, is almost impossible. And I think we've all found that. And I think that's one of the reasons we also went to this tasting menu format. Um, it was really hard in, in the old uh, format to get people to order enough dishes because they do look expensive. And I, and I totally understand that. And even though we'd say, yep, don't worry, at the end, you're going to feel really good. So just order that one more dish. Right. Here, people don't have to worry what the cost of each individual dish is. Right. If I broke out the tasting menu that you had last night and yeah. charged per dish, I mean, it would be like $200. Right, right, right. What, um, you know, this is a topic I'm always loath to go. You, you mentioned uh, a minute ago, you know, coming up and, and your kind of small professional social circle. And you said, you know, you're a vegetarian. You also said you were a, a woman chef. I am. Um, you know, this is, I'm always, I always say, I always, I'll probably always say it in every interview, you know, I, I don't personally believe, at least most people, you know, don't go into business to be a, a woman chef or to right. be a black chef or to be a, you know, I think yeah. people just want to be a chef. Um, but, you know, but here you are. Um, uh, you know, it, it was striking to me last night, and, and not for the first time being here, but you do have a predominantly female kitchen. Yeah. Um, how, how is that, how, I mean, I, I have my own things I might think from sitting at the counter, but how is that different from, like, places you might have worked in coming up? How does it change the dynamic uh, uh, of the day-to-day life in the kitchen? Um, well, if at all. I'm, that's a hard question for me to answer because I think vegetarian restaurants, even though I don't consider myself one, uh, do attract more uh, uh, female workers. Interesting. Uh, I think, so it's always been thus for you yeah, to some extent? I, I mean, right now, actually, we have more men in our kitchen than we've ever had, uh, which is weird. Um, but I, I think, in general, everybody who's working for me now uh, has come up... Either, um, after me and yeah. in a very, very different generation in the kitchen. So uh, it, there's nobody here is macho to sort of use a, a big word to, yeah. you know, to describe sort of what a lot of those male dominated kitchens are like. Yeah. We're just, every, nobody has an ego really. We're all just like, whatever. Uh-huh. And it's a much softer kitchen than I think uh, a sort of uh, intense uh, kitchen filled with men might be like. Uh-huh. What, uh, tell me about the wine list. Uh, My, all, almost all uh, female winemaker yeah. uh, wine list. Yeah, so we um, we have a uh, Lauren Friel is our consultant. Uh, right. She's this amazing sommelier uh, from Boston. And when we started talking about what we wanted to do, she was like, "I really, I would love to get put together an all female wine list for you." And uh, to me, that was really uh, actually it's like just the right sort of note for me because Anissa which is just recently closed. Yeah. For had, people who don't know, this was a Nita Lowe's restaurant yeah. in, the, in the village. It was delicious and unfortunately has uh, closed. Uh, and I thought, you know, it would be really lovely to carry on that torch. She was doing that there. Yeah. yeah. And to, uh, to still celebrate these female wine producers. And you do, I mean, uh, it's always nice to be able to focus these 
uh, things. So, you know, we have a vegetable-focused restaurant. We have a female-focused wine list. Uh, I think it makes it easier for people to navigate rather mm-hmm. than being like, look, it's a wine list from all over the place. Right. Uh, and the wines are delicious. Uh, I don't, or I'm just starting to learn uh, most of them. But so far, I'm like, yeah, women, like, make delicious wine. Uh-huh. Is it, uh, uh, what's the response been to that? Have people taken note? I- I'm not sure they've even... It, I mean, it says on the menu somewhere yeah, women yeah, yeah. crush, but uh, I think they're just excited that they're sort of seeing uh, new uh, wines. Class- there's some classic wines on there, uh, but there's there. It's a very well-rounded mm-hmm. wine list. Do you, um, you know, with some of these topics that we've been talking about for the last couple of minutes, the tipping piece and 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 this, you know, the wine list. Do you enjoy? Um, I don't want to be like cliched or corny about it, but do you? enjoy being able to use your restaurant to advance these philosophies, causes, um, uh, your own points of view. Does, does it add to the satisfaction of doing what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I don't know exactly where my, my place will end up being in this industry. Uh, Meaning what? I, you know, I, I don't know if in... 10 years I'll be remembered as, you know, who I'll be, and people will be like, oh, she was this great chef, or, um, you know, she had this amazing vegetarian restaurant, or people will remember dirt candy. I mean, I really hope they do. Right. Uh, but it is so much more important to me in the long run that I have had a, an effect on the people who work for me. They uh, give me so much of their time, and I really want to give them back uh, not just a safe place to work, but a place where they've learned something and they can feel like they worked in a, uh, a good environment. And through that, I hope they go out into the world and take mm-hmm. all of my philosophies and uh, continue upon them. And I hope that I then am able to also change the industry a little for good. I don't. I want to leave this industry a better place than I came into it. Yeah. And how does that how does that happen? Like in other words, you. I mean, I've been at one or two conferences where I was whatever, moderating or something, right. and you've been speaking about some of these topics we're talking about. Um, is that is that part of this for you? Is that, do you, do you spend time talking to other chefs about these topics in your off time? Do people come to you to kick this stuff around? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, one of the nice things about the tipping is how many chefs have contacted me uh, and asked, you know, how did you do it? Why did you do it? What's it like? And, you know, I always open up my books. Uh, my books are... Uh, free for anybody to look at. And I'm like, this is how it works. This is what we've done. This is what I think would help you. Uh, And how many chefs have gotten to know through that? And um, yeah, being able to speak about these issues sort of at conferences, uh, it's been terrific. I get to meet lots of people. I get to hear their point of views. I get a much wider worldview than I ever would have. Uh And hopefully I get to affect some sort of change. Hopefully so. Hopefully. All right. Well, on that note, Amanda, thanks for joining us. Thank you for coming to Dirt Candy. And that's our show. A huge thank you to Amanda Cohen of Dirt Candy for joining us this week. If you live in or are visiting New York City, I hope you'll support Dirt Candy Restaurant. It's a very fun restaurant, very unique, and one that I personally enjoy. And if you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can also leave us a review on iTunes if you're so inclined. It's something that helps people find the show, which obviously we would love. And if you'd like to follow me, 
The show is on Twitter and Instagram as at Chef Podcast. That's at Chef Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me personally at Tokeland Andrew, T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D, Andrew. And that is, again, both Twitter and Instagram. That's our show for this week. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you back here next week on Andrew Talks to Chefs. 